Let's turn together in God's Word to Colossians chapter 2. This evening, looking at verses 6 and 7, we'll read from verse 1 for context. Before reading, would you join me in prayer, asking for our God's blessing. O great God, as we have just sung, we bow now in humble adoration before our triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, to whom, is, to whom we give all glory, honor, and praise, now and forever. O God, we are wholly needy of your grace. We have nothing in ourselves to see the glories of the riches of the fullness of Jesus Christ. I have no capability. I have no way to expound the riches of that Savior. And we have no capability in ourselves to understand the riches of that Savior. So please work converting power, sanctifying power. Please work otherworldly power now in the service of worship and the preaching of your word that this poor minister and this poor congregation would be able to fathom something of the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God in the provision of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and enable each of us to persevere in his power and grace until we see him face to face and are made like him in resurrection, power, and glory in the place he has prepared for us. Glorify yourself, O God, in this service of worship. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Come to a transition in Paul's epistle to the Colossians. As in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul has spoken of how Jesus Christ has all the fullness of God, the fullness of redemptive blessing. As he said at the end of chapter 1 and verse 28, that he ministers so that he may present all believers mature in Christ before God. And as he said in chapter 2, verse 5, that he was commending the, the Colossian Christians for how they were firmly set upon him here in verses 6 and 7, as we transition into the rest of the book, Paul is emphasizing that the believer is to live wholly out of and only out of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. This is the best antidote to the false teaching that the Colossian Christians were experiencing at that time. It is the best antidote to all false teaching in all forms for all Christians throughout the age until Christ returns. And we'll look at this in four points this evening. Paul first focuses on the believer's past. The believer's past. And that's there in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord. The reception of Christ. 
That is the beginning of union with the Lord Jesus. It is partaking of the new beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, the beginning of a new world, the new order of things in heavenly glory that Jesus Christ has begun in his resurrection. Now, we speak of union with Christ in three tenses. The believer was united to Jesus Christ in eternity past in his predestination, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. The believer was united to Jesus Christ at the cross and the empty tomb in past history 2,000 years ago. Romans chapter 6 verse 5 speaks of this. But there must be a true transition from wrath to grace in the life history of the sinner personally. That is present personal union with Jesus Christ, which we see here in verse 6. You and I were conceived and born in sin. We are all children of God's righteous wrath until we receive Christ by faith. This is present existential faith union in which redemption is applied to the believer. That is the reception of Christ that Paul speaks of here. When you received Christ, believer, you received a new order of things. The heavenly world broke into your earthly existence because Jesus Christ is the embodiment of heaven. John 14, verse 6. I want to read to you a paragraph from Francis Turretin that so helpfully and biblically and winsomely speaks of the the nature of this true faith in receiving Christ. Turton says this, This is the act of reception of Christ, or of adhesion and union, by which we not only seek Christ through a desire of the soul and fly to Him, but apprehend and receive Him offered, embrace Him found, apply Him to ourselves, and adhere to and unite ourselves to Him. For as God freely offers his own son in the gospel to the sinful soul, burdened and cast down and broken by sense of his sins, and Christ offers himself with all his benefits and the fullness of salvation residing in him, so the soul, firmly persuaded of the fullness of salvation in Christ, seriously flying to him and earnestly desiring communion with him, cannot help embracing with the highest freedom of the will that supreme good offered and the inestimable treasure selling all for him, resting upon Christ as the sole redeemer and delivering and making himself over and so firmly retaining him that he is prepared to lose anything else rather than reject him. This is the principal act of true faith, usually termed reception. As many as received him, John 1 verse 12. Believers are said to receive the gift of righteousness, Romans 5, to receive Christ, Colossians 2. Think of the Song of Solomon. I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go. Sometimes it is his meat and drink, Matthew 5, the putting on of Christ, Galatians 3. And because the soul thus apprehending Christ reclines upon him, rests upon him, cleaves to him, faith is also sometimes described as an act of reclining as an act of adhesion and binding closely and of the most strict union by which we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh and one with him. Christ himself dwells in us and we in him. From this union of persons arises the participation in the blessings of Christ. Do you hear how that reception of Christ is a most vital, a most personal, a most intimate reception not believing the truth about him, not affirming facts about him, which even the devil can do, but an intimate life-to-life, 
person-to-person reception as he dwells in us and we dwell in him, united to him by faith. Our larger catechism speaks of how union with Jesus Christ brings into view all the benefits that he has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. Benefits such as justification, adoption, sanctification, right standing with God legally, reception into his family, being cut off from sin's enslaving power, and then set to the trajectory of growing in his grace. These and and infinitely more, these blessings of Jesus Christ. But more basic than the benefits of salvation is the benefactor of salvation. This is a person-centered religion, not something we get from Christ, but in getting Christ, we get all. Listen to Larger Catechism 69. What is the communion in grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ? The communion in grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is their partaking of the virtue of his mediation in their justification, adoption, sanctification, and whatever else in this life manifests their union with him. And so as glorious as justification is, no hope without it. As glorious as adoption, sanctification are, no hope without them. More basic than these and all the other benefits is Christ himself. These benefits manifest union with him, as the catechism says. Once you receive the whole Christ, the whole Christ who has accomplished redemption, you have him in all the redemption he has accomplished in his humiliation and his exaltation. So Paul speaks here of the beginning of the Christian life in receiving Christ, the transition from being under God's wrath, suppressing the truth by unrighteousness, to now being in Christ and being in God's favor and love instead. That is when you received, the word Paul uses there, when you received Christ. This is in a tense that means that it is a, an accomplished act. You did it at the beginning of your Christian life, when you were converted from wrath to grace, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. This word Paul uses for received is a word of close association, to take to oneself. The, the confession of faith, chapter 14, in the, the chapter on saving faith, articulates Paul's point, chapter 14, paragraph 2 that the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. This is a most near and intimate association with the Lord Jesus Christ, not awareness of him, but an apprehending of him, a true reception of life to life, you in him and he in you. Note also specifically, because everything in Scripture is is purposeful, notice who is received in verse 6, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord. Very, Very specific description of the Lord Jesus there. How the believer, how you believer at conversion received Christ Jesus, the Lord. We now have union with the risen and ascended Christ. Unlike Abraham or Moses or David, we are not united to a Christ yet to come, whom we worship and glorify and enjoy in types and shadows from a distance in the the observance of the ceremonial law. We are not like the disciples who for those three days were humiliated to 
were, were united to a humiliated Christ under the power of death for a time, as we saw in our catechism review this evening. We are united to a Christ who is exalted, who is the Lord. He has, of course, always been the Lord. As we saw in the Christ hymn in Colossians 1, he is, as the creed says, building on the, on the creed, on, on that, that hymn rather, the creed says that he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. He has always been the Lord. But now, in the fullness of time, now because of what he has done, by virtue of his resurrection, according to his human nature, his office as redeemer, he is now something he was not beforehand. He is the Son of God in power, the power of a resurrection life, Romans 1 verse 4. The one who now lives by the power of God, 2 Corinthians 13 4. He is the God-appointed, heaven-ascended, throne-occupying Lord and Christ, which God made him, Acts 2, Peter says in, in that Pentecost sermon, and he is the highly exalted one on whom God has bestowed the matchless name, the name above all names, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. We now have union with this ascended Christ, this heavenly man, this man who has the heavenly quality of life in his resurrection that he gives to those who trust in him, who are in union with him. We trust in, we are in, we have received the Christ who has accomplished redemption, who brings the perfection of his merits not into the earthly tabernacle, but into heaven itself in God's presence. We are of all believers in all times most to be privileged because we know this Christ, the exalted and ascended Lord. This reception of Christ is indissoluble. Romans 8, 38 and 39, I am sure that Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so already here, as all throughout the epistle to the Colossians, Paul has been taking those shots at the Colossian heresy, that heresy that insists that Christ is great, but he's not enough. You must add to him. Paul already here is insisting that you have this wondrous glorious beginning believer to the Christian life, to your newness of life in Christ. As Christ himself is the beginning of a new life, of heavenly life, of kingdom life, chapter 1 verse 18, and you have received him who has given you the fullness of, of saving grace and of life, heavenly life, what more could you add to that? What could you supplement to that? What could you, with all of creation, supplement to the fullness of salvation that is in Jesus Christ? That leads us, secondly, we looked at the believer's past. Secondly, we see now the believer's present, also in verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Or more, more woodenly, in him walk. It would seem, at least in practice, that many believers needing more instruction are under the impression that conversion is all there is to being a Christian. Repent of your sin, rest upon Christ, and then, we may not put it this way, but just coast until death. Just exist until death or until he returns. Yes, going to church is helpful. Doing Christian things is helpful. But really, when you've professed faith in Christ, when you've received him, that's all there is to do. But God's Word rejects this, this static kind of Christian existence. The logic here Paul gives is clear. You have received Christ at the beginning of the Christian life. 
So that means that necessarily entails walking in him. In other words, live in the Christ you already have. You've received him, which means you walk in him. Now, this terminology of walk, walking in Christ, is terminology Paul uses elsewhere, many places in the New Testament use, to speak of the entirety of our existence. Our lifestyle is a walk. What you, what you take in, what you watch, what you listen to, who you associate with, the things you, you give yourself to, the way you conduct yourself, that is your walk. You now have a new walk in Christ. Think of how Paul talks about this walk in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that, that justly famous portion of Scripture, portion of Paul's epistles, how Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were walking in sin and unbelief, you were walking on a pathway of death unto the fullness of death and of, of, of God's wrath and, and curse for your sin, but God raised you from the dead with him. Raised, raised you with, with Christ from the dead, seated you with him in the heavenly places, and now you have a new walk. You are walking in the pathway of death unto death, but you have a new walk, a walk of the pathway of life unto the fullness of life. Now that you've been raised from the dead with Jesus Christ, now that you've been seated with Jesus Christ in heavenly places, to already now have a foretaste of, a preview of, a true contact with the heavenly life that will be yours in fullness when he returns, you walk in that life. That's the, the kind of life you walk in, the, the pathway you walk in unto the fullness of that heavenly life when Christ returns. But regardless, regardless of the unbeliever walking on the pathway of death or the believer walking on the pathway of life, you have a walk. You have a lifestyle. You live your, way, you live your life in a particular way. And so we see here in Colossians, which is very similar to the other prison epistle of Ephesians, Paul is calling us to walk, to have a comprehensive lifestyle that is, verse 6, in him, in Christ. Herman Ritterboss comments, It is of utmost importance for the upbuilding of the church that as it has received and learned Christ, so it should walk in and abide in him. Now, Paul could have said many legitimate things. He could have said, as you receive Christ, so walk worthily of him, trust in him, obey him, worship him, imitate him, etc. But he didn't. He says, walk in Christ. So not only is union with Jesus Christ crucial for the beginning of the Christian life, union with Christ is the dynamic, the lifeblood of the entirety of the Christian life. No Christ, no Christian, no union with Christ, no Christian life. And this is something Paul is zealous to hammer home to the church, that Jesus Christ is not training wheels for something else. He is not preschool for, for the, the greater grades. He is not something that you have to get initially and then discard. All of life is in Christ. This newness of life is Christ himself, and you walk in that life until you see him face to face. It is all about Christ. Did you hear today that warning about how easily we are distracted from Christ? 
The devil would have nothing more, would be delighted in nothing more for the church of Jesus Christ to add to Jesus Christ, however, however discreetly or however we may justify it in so many turns of phrase. The simplicity of it, though, is you are either walking in Christ or in something else. In your supplement to him, which is actually in practice dilution of him, or you're walking out of the fullness that is the, is the fullness of salvation that is in and that is Jesus Christ for the believer, period. This, this preposition in, walk in Jesus Christ, so walk in him, is a mark of close personal association. Walk in Christ, walk one with Christ, walk in union with him, join closely to him. Another Another close personal association, just as it was a close personal association at the beginning and the reception of Christ, so it is for walking in him, for living out the fullness of the Christian life. There is now a new principle of life, a new pathway to walk on. Resurrection life united to the resurrected Christ unto the fullness of that resurrection life. This is the the Pauline equivalent of what Jesus commands us in John 15, that we abide in him. Christ is the vine. You and I are the branches. The branch is lifeless in itself, unable to produce fruit, to produce anything. But the vine is life. The vine has all life and nourishment in itself. It is positively life-giving. Thus, the branch in union with the vine has all. Apart from the vine, the branch has nothing, but in the vine it has everything. As the hymn says, more than all in him I find. This, this command here that we are to walk, this is a present imperative. As a present, in the present tense, it is talking about how there is, this is to be an ongoing thing. There is no termination to this walk. It is a command always to be done to live your life, to conduct yourself in Christ at all times, repeatedly, consciously, always. There is, there is no end to the duration of walking in Christ. We could paraphrase. This is, this is stealing from Richard Gaffin. Constantly walk in Christ. Behave in Christ again and again. Be concerned with a constant, ever greater outworking of being who you are in Christ. Walking in Christ means you are animated by, motivated by, nothing other than Jesus Christ. Not what this world gives, what the, this world age, cursed in sin, offers. Not by what the, the remaining flesh suggests, but by Christ. Comprehensively, the entire lifestyle of the Christian is sustained, nourished by, and centered in Jesus Christ. We draw from him. In terms of the the specific Colossian heresy, we do not add to him, we live out of him. We draw from him. As he has all fullness, we live out of that fullness. Our way of life is now Christ. This is the beginning, or at the least it is a a terse presentation of what we'll see later on in in Colossians as we get to chapter 3, Lord willing, eventually, of of what what we call in in grammatical terms, the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is a mood in, in Greek grammar that, that describes a state of affairs, what is true. I am tall. 
relatively tall. That is the indicative, a state of affairs, which leads to the imperative, a command, a command that would be something like, you should be tall, something that ordinarily one cannot produce. The indicative, the state of affairs, who we are in Christ, leads to the imperative, how we are to walk, how we are to obey and live out of the fullness of salvation in Christ. In simpler terms, indicative is what Christ has done. Imperative is how we are to respond in obedience. The indicative and the imperative must always go together. The indicative must come first. It must be what God has done in Jesus Christ for the, for the church. But the imperative must follow. The commands must follow. We do not sit idly by simply acknowledging what God has done. We live in light of it. We live out of that new reality that, that is dawned in Jesus Christ. We need both. Both are the activity of true and lively faith. True faith receives the indicative, receives Christ and all of his benefits, beginning in verse 6. But true faith also in its activity answers to the imperative, walking in him. That is the, the, the simple logic Paul gives here in verse 6. And we'll see that, that, that explained further in Colossians chapter 3 as he unpacks this, as he as zooms in more into this glorious diamond of the benefits of Jesus Christ. You have received him, you have Christ and all of his benefits. That is true of you by sovereign grace. And now because of this, the imperative, walk in him. Live out of what you have in the indicative, in the, in the truth of what is now given to you, applied to you in Jesus Christ. Obey this. Live in light of this. Be new in light of the newness of life that is yours in the Savior. These two things... So far in, in verse 6, receiving Christ, and then in light of that, walking in Christ. Both of these things, as we've seen, are intensely personal, vital, life-to-life, face-to-face communion. It is not that you received Christ at the beginning, and a supernatural work occurred in which you were transferred out of the dominion of sin and the, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, and now all you do is simply remember that, is simply think back to that time, and that's all it means to walk in Christ. As one false teaching has put it recently, I reiterate, as one false teaching has put it recently, sanctification is the art of getting used to your justification. As if sanctification is simply remembering justification, just idly playing a mental game of acclimating to what God has done. No. What Paul gives in verse 6 is that both at the beginning, the inception of the Christian life, and in the outworking of the Christian life, these are both, as they are distinct parts of one whole of union with Jesus Christ, they are intensely personal, they are life-to-life and face-to-face communion, as friend has fellowship with friend. I'm going to give you an onslaught of quotes from Scripture and from some of our, our, our Reformed theologians. Psalm 25, 14. This is emphasizing the, the face-to-face personal communion of the Christian life. Psalm 25, 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. Friendship with the Lord. Voss defines the Christian life as standing in conscious reciprocal fellowship with Him, 
to be identified with him in thought and purpose and work to receive from him and give back to him in the ceaseless interplay of spiritual forces to have direct confrontation of the religious mind with him, which finds in the covenant idea its perfect expression. Voss, in in one of his sermons, talks about how communion with Christ is like the communion a true child has with with his parents. The true child will spontaneously, instinctively turn to the presence and smile of its parents as a flower will seek the face of the sun. And in the same way, the true child of God will have moments in which he turns to his Father in heaven, unconscious of any other desire than the desire to be near unto God. Yes, it is appropriate for the child of God to ask things of God because we can in no other way procure them. Only he can provide us what we need. What, what, what we need. But what would you think of a child, Voss also says, that only speaks to his parents to get him stuff? That is a selfish child. There is a, what he calls, a disinterestedness in the true child, in the true child of God, to speak with, to commune with God for its own sake. Not to get things from him, though we need those things, but to get himself and to have fellowship with him, to be near unto him and to dwell in his presence. Read sometime the Song of Solomon and the intensity of that, that type, that allegory, that image of Christ with his church. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. Again, that back and forth, face-to-face spiritual communion that we have with God in Jesus Christ. Psalm 46, 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Or Psalm 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Again, this intensely personal, face-to-face, life-to-life communion that, that began at the inception of the Christian life at conversion is to continue, is to deepen throughout the Christian life. We see it there in verse 6. It leads us thirdly to the pattern of the believer's presence. We saw, secondly, the believer's present. This, thirdly, is the pattern of the believer's present. This is in verse 7. Verse 7 gives us some specifics here. What does it look like in particular, Paul, to walk in Christ? How should newness of life in Christ manifest itself? Paul gives us four specifics for participles of the believer's new mode of existence. So these four points under this, under this uh, third main point. First of all, walking in Christ means you are rooted in him. That's the first thing in verse 7, rooted in Christ. This is a, a perfect passive. The image here is of a plant fixed in the ground, taking root, firmly fixed. The perfect tense shows that it was planted in the past, but it continues to be planted. An action in the past that that has a, a present ongoing state of affairs that is now in effect. We could define this as become strengthened with a focus upon the source of such strength. 
Think of the, of the tree analogies in, in the Old Testament. Psalm 1, the blessed man delights in God's word day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Similar to, to Jeremiah 17, or, or to John 15 that we mentioned earlier. This again is, is the person in constant vital contact with the heavenly life-giving source, nearness unto, vital contact with Jesus Christ, the enlivening vine. Secondly, the second aspect of what it means to walk in Christ there in verse 7, walking in Christ means you are built up in him, built up in him. The image there is of being constructed further, of being built approaching completion, being built up more and more to increase the, the potential of something with, with a focus upon the process involved, make more able to strengthen, to build up. This as, as a present, in the present tense, this is an ongoing thing, continually be built up in the Lord Jesus. The believer is a, is a building project. Further sanctification is in view here. You have only begun when you have received Christ and walking in him be built up more and more. This is the, this is the, the second participle, the second thing there in verse 7. Notice how both of them in verse 7, rooted and built up in him. Again, Paul is, is holding before us at every point the constant and vital contact with Jesus Christ don't build yourself up and try real hard and, and do more and, and, and try harder by yourself. Be built up in Him. Go to Him to be built up, a personal approach to growth in grace, the only approach to growth in grace. Thirdly, walking in Christ means you are established in the truth. Established in the truth, and that's what I'm saying there is in verse 7, established in the faith, just as you were taught. Established in the faith, just as you were taught. This, this phrase begins with, a, with another present participle, established. The image there is of becoming strengthened or securely settled, to increase in strength, to have greater firmness of character or attitude. Hebrews 13 gives a, another image of this. Hebrews 13, 9 do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Strengthening there in the faith. Notice there how that, that phrase there, strengthened in the faith, that is in the singular. The faith is in the singular. So it's unlikely that Paul is talking about having your faith subjectively increased and strengthened, though that can be involved secondarily. I think what Paul is talking about here rather is being strengthened in the faith, the gospel that you heard, the body of teaching you have heard from Epaphras, as we saw in, in Colossians chapter 1, from your pastors, your Sunday school teachers, your parents, your, your, your school teachers. Grow in that body of teaching and doctrine that you have received, but keep receiving it. Keep growing in it. Keep implicating into it further and further. Grow in the truth you have been taught. And when you grow in that, what we could call, objective body of doctrine, in the faith in that sense, your faith will grow as well. Your faith will be strengthened as well. That is to take place just as you were taught. You were taught at the beginning. That coincides with receiving Christ there in verse 6. 
You heard the word taught or proclaimed, and you were converted in hearing the word of Christ. The reason that conversion comes when the word of Christ is taught and proclaimed is because Jesus Christ as prophet reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation, short of Catechism 24, such that when you hear the word taught, read, preached at school, in family worship, wherever, you are hearing not the person reading it, you are hearing the person of Jesus Christ speaking in the scriptures. And he, by his word and by his spirit, converts sinners and grows sinners united to him in grace. So Paul's telling us here to go deeper in what you were taught. Receive more of the teaching of Christ in his word, because receiving more of the word means receiving more of Christ. Now what's interesting here about these first three descriptions of what it means to walk in Christ is that they are all in the passive voice, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. This is all passive. But how can that be? How, how do you walk passively? How do you walk in Christ and manifest that in a passive way? Richard Gaffin is helpful here, that these passive things that we see there in verse 7 They point up, because they are passive, that walking in Christ, in a real sense, means that this is something we are called to do that is not within our ability to to do. We don't have the capacity to walk in our own strength. So how how do we walk in these things passively? Well, one way we carry them out is by prayer. In prayer, as we seek as we offer up our, our desires unto God in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies, we're asking God to work these things in us, to grant what he commands. As Augustine prayed, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. We are praying that God would work in us what is pleasing in, in his sight. But another way we carry this out, especially as as it has to do here with deeper and more being more established in the faith as we were taught, is to know Scripture as well. That's there at the, toward the end of verse 7, established in the faith just as you were taught. And then look over in chapter, chapter 3 real quick, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We'll get to that more as we get, get there later on, Lord willing. But basically, the way we walk in passive manifestations of walking in Christ, very paradoxical of course, is by prayerfully endeavoring to get more of the Word, and in getting more of the Word prayerfully, we get more of Christ and walk in obedience to Him, more so walk in Him. As, as the Shorter Catechism puts it, that we attend unto the Word with diligence, preparation, and prayer, receive it with faith and love, lay it up on our hearts, and practice it in our lives. Fourthly, and finally on this point of, the, of what it means to walk in Christ, into verse 7, walking in Christ means we are abounding in gratitude, abounding in, in thanksgiving. That's the, the phrase that begins with a, a present participle, abounding, and it means that we are to increase in this. We are to be outstanding in thanksgiving, be prominent in it, excel in thanksgiving, cause thanksgiving to abound, be in abundance of it, have more left over. Thanksgiving is what characterizes the true believer. And since this 
final phrase, abounding in thanksgiving, is in the active voice. This is one thing we do cultivate. We do walk in obedience in. We are to cultivate in more and more, as we do receive the word more and more, to cultivate thanksgiving for what God has given. Thanksgiving is is an intensely personal thing. Not just a feeling of, I'm glad I don't have what other people, bad things other people have, or I'm glad for the things I do have. It is a personal thing. I'm glad that God has given me these things. That though I am undeserving of his, of his mercies, that though I am de- deserving of his wrath and curse, what I do deserve has been withheld from me by him, And what I don't deserve, he has lavishly given to me in abundance. Heavenly blessings without measure, as the hymn puts it. Additionally, gratitude is an element of being filled with the Spirit. Think of how Paul explains being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5. Be filled with the Spirit, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Gratitude marks the Christian holistically and entirely. Rudabas sums, sums it up well, that the church must ever increasingly draw from the fact that Christ is its foundation and the source of its life. Well, I said we'd do four points. Let's keep it at three and bring it to a conclusion. First, as we close, first things first, you cannot walk until you receive There is no continuing in Christ until and unless you receive Christ. You are walking, unbeliever, but you are walking in the wrong path in the wrong direction. You are on a path of death headed for eternal death. So come now to Jesus Christ and experience that about face we mentioned earlier. From death to resurrection life. Receive Christ and the fullness of life and salvation and blessing that is in him and Once you have received it, then walk in that life until you see him face to face. Secondly, for the believer, there's no better way, I think, to conclude than with this word from Charles Spurgeon, and with this we close. When we received Christ Jesus the Lord, we received the whole of him. We took him for all that we knew of him, and we found that he was much more than we thought he was. We did not pick and choose and say we will have his pardon but not have his sanctification. We took the many-sided Christ, the Christ of many glorious characters, the Christ of 10,000 times 10,000 beauties. We took Christ to teach us, Christ to lead us, Christ to feed us, Christ to cheer us, Christ for us to obey, and Christ for us to delight in. We took a whole Christ. And then we gave him our whole selves. We said, Lord, take us body, soul, and spirit. We prayed that the sacrifice might be bound with cords to the horns of the altar forever. We made no bargains with him. We gave the freehold of our souls to Jesus and of our bodies too. And we only asked that we might not have a pulse beating except for him or our lungs heaving except as he was our very life. And we took Christ, at least I know I did, for better or worse, in health or in sickness, to have and to hold so that even death should never part us. We put our hand in his and asked him to take us and keep us forever. And we took him and said, we will hold to thee and will not let thee go. Since then, there has been many a tug from Satan who has tried to drag us away from Christ or to make us think that Christ was going away from us. But we have managed to hold to him to this hour. Perhaps you feel as though you had only got a hold of the hem of his garment. 
If so, try to get a firmer hold of him. Grasp him. Hold him by the feet. Throw your arms about him and tell him that without a smile from him, your spirit cannot rest. Tell him that you are lovesick and want his presence and must have it. And beg him by the rose and by the hinds of the field to come to you. Say unto him, My Lord, if thou dost love me, come and show thy love. If indeed there be between thee and me a union of an eternal nature, come to me. Be not strange to thine own flesh, but be now as thou wast of old. Come to me again, and let thy left hand be under my head, while thy right hand doth embrace me. Oh, for more of these blessed hungerings and longings. Beloved, we will never let Christ go. We took him forever, and we will hold him forever, and blessed be his name, he will hold us forever. We are in his hand, and none can pluck us thence. There shall we be when earth and heaven are in a blaze. There shall we be when he shall sit upon his judgment seat, and there shall we be world without end. Amen.